people that are saying, you know, I'm not, I'm not racist, I'm not racist, and yet because, but, but they're not willing to be nuanced about saying, but I understand that there are, you know, that there are terrible things, and I understand that I have even played a part in that. Right. And on the other side, you're, you have this, um, yeah, this, this seems like an attitude of, you know, you, you're wrong, and we just need to get rid of you. And no, no, no trying to find any connection, right? Right. Both sides of that polarization fuel one another, right? Because when you're in a relationship that lacks mercy and forgiveness, then there's no room for mistakes. Three, two, one. Welcome to another Nerding Out with That Nerdy Catholic. I am Seth Payne, That Nerdy Catholic. And uh, today we have on a returning guest we've had on a couple times. Dr. Brent Robbins is a professor of uh, psychology at Point Park University in Pittsburgh. I always love saying that. It's like the, <laughs> the, the pickled peppers. Of, uh, There's a lot of peas. And, there are a lot of peas. And, uh, and today uh, we're going to be talking about, about mercy and especially uh, what it means to, to have mercy in this, in this modern culture that we live in. Um, so, Brent, before we get into it, uh, share with us a little bit of the, you know, how has mercy come into to the studies that you've done, the work that you've done in, uh, in psychology? Yeah. Uh, well, in, personally, in, in the way that I've come into it is studying the history of psychology. So I teach courses, undergraduate and graduate level, in the sort of history and systems and theories of psychology. And uh, so I'm interested in how psychological concepts sort of enter into the lexicon, enter into the conversation in psychology, and also when they disappear in the social and cultural circumstances around that. So uh, when, I, when I started looking at mercy as a construct, it really begins to enter into the English language in the 12th century. And, and it comes to the English through the French. And then from the French, they, it's a translation of uh, the Latin misericordia. And so, uh, so when I started to look at that time period, uh, it was really interesting to look at French culture and how it was incorporating this Christian and Latin concept of misericordia, which really, if you translate it literally, it means to sort of suffer with the other. Hmm. It, it's probably hmm. most accurately translated as compassion because calm passion to suffer with the other, right? So yeah. misericordia has that meaning. It's what's when, when charity is talked about in scripture, in the Latin Vulgate, misericordia is the term that they use. So when so mercy becomes the word that's a translation of misericordia into French and then in, finally into English. And I and around that, so I was looking at you know high Middle Ages and what was happening in French culture at that time, and noticed that I mean Thomas Aquinas I think had a big influence because of his emphasis on charity and therefore mercy as a, as a virtue but also in the writings on reconciling what many see as a paradox or a contradiction between mercy and justice. 
So that's kind of what got me interested in it. And then I also got interested in the fact that when you see modern psychology, which is uh, you, usually when people teach history of psychology, they, they don't start, you know, like in ancient Greece. They start, mm -hmm. you know, it may be in the 17th century, usually, you know, late 19th century, right? And, they, and everything before that is just ignored and seen as, yeah. you know, backward and part of the Dark Ages or whatever, <laughs> you know, dismissed as mm -hmm. being irrelevant. And what I found was that there is a marked and absence of any study of mercy in psychology. It's just if you look at, hmm. if you go, even today, if you go in the research literature and you type in mercy in psychology, very little comes up. If it does, it's usually like maybe a journal in pastoral psychology or something like that, mm -hmm. or theology and psychology, but not mainstream sort of secular culture. You do see a lot of research starting in the 2000s on forgiveness mm -hmm. and there's a lot of overlap between research on forgiveness and mercy and that's any but even that was neglected for a long time so psychology has not focused on that and so that that was interesting to me what happened how did why was mercy such a central concept within the culture starting in the high middle ages and it had it by the way enormous impact on the culture so in mm -hmm. pay in the pagan ethics you you really saw the viewpoint that mercy and justice were opposed to one another. Mercy was sort of a travesty of justice because if you forgave someone for an offense and you didn't punish them for it, then you were essentially allowing that justice to go unresolved, right? Right. And so this idea that mercy and justice are not opposed but combat compatible is a very radical idea that comes out of the Christian tradition. And so I think that part of what's happened is as the Christian ethos has begun to wane in Western culture, and even there's hostility to it, certainly in ac academia, and I think in the scientific community around this time, around the, the birth of modern psychology, there's overt hostility to uh, you know, the church. There, a, lot of, right. a lot of science at this time is asserting you know, a kind of positivism that whose very identity depends upon a kind of rejection of church teaching and church authority, uh, especially in well, France. Well, so, so thinking about what, um, you, when, when you have mercy or compassion or forgiveness, there, there's a wrong, like you said, there's a wrong that needs to be forgiven. Do you think that there's this, uh, this lack of study of, of mercy, forgiveness, and compassion? Um, is there any connection with that and the lack of an understanding of, of sin or, or evil that is kind of built into us and not just some people that do evil things? Right. Yeah. Like it's something that's part of us. That's a really interesting question because the other thing that I've been studying a lot, I had a student do her dissertation on when uh, addiction became conceptualized as a medical disease you know when, when mm -hmm. did that concept emerge and she was able to trace it back to a, a french physician in mid 19th century france like publishing this idea around 1847 and uh the, this is i promise this is going to get back to your question but, <laughs> uh uh but what what she found was that Mercy, I mean, not mercy, but the, the idea, th this idea of uh, sin 
was still part of this idea of addiction as a disease at that time. There was a mm-hmm. there was a whole movement in medicine to try to secularize what had been traditionally more church uh, more directed religious. discussions or more religious discussions mm-hmm. about how moral issues can impact mental health and well-being. So there was mm-hmm. a, that was still very much there. In fact, uh, in Moral, who was the who was the physician that she was studying, was himself a Catholic. He was a fairly radical left sort of Catholic who was tied mm-hmm. to a kind of Catholic socialism at that time, but still a Catholic and saw that really he, what he saw as conditions of social injustice, like poverty at that time, were contributing to conditions that lent themselves to addiction. And I think in many cases he was right. I mean, in that a lot of many conditions of poverty, conditions of, uh, uh, well, in this case, there's a lot of post-traumatic stress because, what, literally every two years there's some kind of revolution happening in France at this time and people yeah. being killed and, and, and within people's lifetimes you had the terror. So so I think Moro was aware that there was a kind of what he called a degeneration of the culture and that that was impacting mm-hmm. people mentally. But a lot of this was also about perpetuation of kinds of sin uh, that was corrupting families and the culture and that people were suffering from that. But he thought that that became uh, physical, right? That, that it had physical manifestations, that it caused degeneration in the brain and the nervous system, and that that could actually be passed along genetically and culturally to the next generation, and that you had a degeneration of the person and the family over time. But within a generation, within about, let's say, it was 1847, by the 1880s, there's a shift in the discourse towards understanding addiction primarily as a biological problem. Okay. And that required biological solutions. So you get a loss of this idea of sort of sin or morality contributing mm-hmm. to psychological problems. Yeah. Well, it, it seems that looking at a lot of the shifts in that, in that era towards more of a secular understanding um, of psychology as well as, you know, as well as a lot of areas of life, um, that l- people looked back at the church and at scripture and said, you know, there are all these things that that are looked at as spiritual issues, right? And yet we know that there is a physical or a psychological component to it. Therefore, the spiritual side must just be something that they made up to explain it, and it's just physical or psychological. Right, right. I think so, right, yeah. So, by, you know, so in certain aspects of the culture, mid-1800s, people are still accepting that there's a spiritual component, but that the spiritual mm-hmm. component has a psychological and a physical component. They don't see that those as incompatible. By the 1880s, mm-hmm. you see, uh, you see th- there was an anti-clerical sort of sentiment that was growing in, in French medical community over the course of that century, but really mm. becomes empowered in the 1880s because of shifts in, uh, in government that were happening in France at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so people, the anti-cleric sort of came into power and the church lost its, uh, a lot of its power and authority in the culture. And one of the first things they did is they went in and got rid of all the clergy in the hospitals, including, you know, the nuns that were working in the hospitals and replaced them with mm-hmm. sort of secular nurses and doctors and so on. So, and, and a big part of that 
a big part of the rhetoric around that was that there were all these sort of backward ideas, you know, going on in medicine, like that, that mental illness is really a biological problem. And that for a long time, people thought that this had to do with sort of demons and exorcism was the way to treat it. It was a very kind of unfair, uh, anachronistic mm -hmm. kind of way of sort of yeah. reading, reading uh, those ideas. There's this really interesting tension even at that time among some of the French physicians because they don't all they don't all agree on that. Like Pierre Genet, for example, he really saw something to the church's understanding of possession and saw it, thought it had some meaning. He tried to understand it through hypnosis and the concepts of the unconscious, but he took it mm -hmm. pretty seriously. And when he worked with a woman, for example, who was a mystic who was uh, in the hospital, he was very respectful of her religious beliefs. He felt that it was actually beneficial to her well-being to affirm her spirituality, even though he didn't agree with them or accept them. Mm -hmm. He thought that there was something to it that was worthy of respect. Uh, but then you had other physicians like Charcot, for example, who were overtly hostile to bringing any spiritual discussion. He thought it, would, it was regressive. And it would uh, take us back to sort of a pre-scientific or anti-scientific sentiment, sentimentality that medicine had to get rid of if it was going to progress. Was it an issue on both sides, seeing this dichotomy of, of either um, you know, looking at it from a spiritual or a scientific point of view? Were, 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 there, were there Catholics at the time that were trying to uh, bridge both understandings yeah you know it's what the interesting thing is i think that many people when they tell there's a kind of myth you know that the church was anti-science at this time and was mm -hmm. rejecting biological explanations but what i'm starting to see and i for a long time you know in my early training you know i accepted that kind of myth but then when i actually started reading the history when i actually started reading the primary texts what i was actually seeing was that the Catholic physicians at that time, uh, and even the church, were was not dismissive of the biological and the psychological dimension of things, but they saw mm -hmm. the spiritual as, you know, being part of that. And it, and the other thing that you see happening around this time, again, starting around the, the mid mid eighteenth century, you see it in France, but you see it in other places, is where the church becomes much more rigorous in its investigation of claims of miracles and, and possession. And they begin to use scientific methodology as a way to do that. So the apparitions that were happening uh, at that time, for example, uh, at Lourdes, the apparition at Lourdes, and then the healings that were happening at Lourdes, suddenly you see a much, compared to previous periods, a lot of empirical science and, and the bringing in of, of uh, even secular medical doctors to evaluate the evidence when people had claims of healing that continues even today at Lourdes, uh, mm -hmm. it was uh, clearly the church's affirmation of empirical science as a valuable form of knowing and something that was compatible with the church. The view is that, mm -hmm. you know, the facts are friendly, you know, and the yeah. church has nothing to fear from science. So right. this idea that, that if, the if church, it's, if it's true, if it's true, right? Yeah. If it's true, then it's true. Right. And there was a high bar. Right. You really right. You, you had to really have clear, concrete evidence of a healing. And if something mm -hmm. could have, could be probably explained by, you know, spontaneous recovery, it, it would be rejected. It had to be something that was mm -hmm. truly extraordinary 
for the church to accept it as a legitimate healing. Yeah. And, and all, after a lot of scrutiny over many years, the same thing with uh, the way miracles have begun to be investigated uh, around this time. And even prior to this, a lot of there's a very high bar uh, for yeah. uh, evidence to support a miracle. And a lot of evidence has to be ushered in order to uh, for the church to accept a, mir- a claim of a miracle as being credible. And every, anybody yeah. who's ever closely watched the canonization of a saint and the process for that knows that there's an enormous amount of research that goes into that. And any any bishop that gets involved in that knows it's going to cost a lot of money. <laughs> it's yeah. a very expensive yeah. project uh, because yeah. there's a lot of experts who need to be brought in and to weigh in on the, the, the uh, empirical evidence. That was all yeah. f- surprising to me. The first time I actually learned about that was actually a book. I'm going to forget the name of the author now, but the name of the book is called The Miracle Detective. And I know the author was is a Rolling Stone editor and he got he got involved in studying miracles initially because he, he thought it was he was going to expose it as being this ridiculous thing, you know, like people finding you know, images of Jesus in their toast in the morning or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so I think he went into it very much as a skeptic. But by the time he came out of it, uh, he was uh, almost a converted. Yeah, so the book sort of, he doesn't convert, you know, he's sort of, mm-hmm. but he's, he's definitely shifted his attitude and saying there's something to this that's, that's greater than what I assumed. Yeah. And uh, he yeah. even goes to uh, Medjugorje and spends a lot of time in Medjugorje studying miracles there. And, but I think most of all, he, he leaves being impressed by the rigor of the church's investigation of these miracles and mm-hmm. has a lot of respect for that. So I think that that was a, the first time, when, you know, many, if you haven't watched the earlier episodes, I was an agnostic that had fallen away from the church. So when I was reading this book, it was during that period of time where I was mm-hmm. still very much a skeptic. So that was, mm-hmm. reading that book had a, was surprising to me at the time, and mm-hmm. I think it part of my journey, you know, back home to the Catholic yeah. Church. So people have this picture, at least of the the, the clerical, the, you know, the clerics at the time, the, the, the priests and, and other religious people, that they were stingent on the, you know, they were stuck on their religious side and didn't want to think of the science. And it was the, the you know, the secular scientific people that were open-minded Right, and yet, really, in a way, it's it's the it's it's the other way around. Right, and so thinking about that, that that's a hundred years ago. I mean, over a hundred years ago now, that um, that that mindset has crept in. I mean, I wouldn't even say crept in; it, it has become part of our culture. Right, and so thinking today about what life is like, and thinking of this this idea. I, th- I think you talked about this before, you know, in in talking about joy and your research in joy, mm-hmm. that it that it's it seems novel, right? <laughs> although it shouldn't seem novel, because because joy and mercy that you know people have been thinking about this for you know centuries, a long time. But because yes, but because of the world that we live in, this this combination of you know well, this thinking of the religious concepts from any sort of a scientific viewpoint seems novel right Right. yeah i mean uh joy studying joy is a good example of that and mercy in both cases 
among my colleagues who, you know, are not religious. Uh, probably more, you know, along the lines of the unchurched, or maybe people are even anti-theistic who've sort of left the left the church and are hostile to it and to theism. Uh, when I encounter those people, they're you know very skeptical about that research, you know, just because they know the history of it and that, that it has sort of religious connotations. Um, but you could study anything empirically, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. And what I found is that you can develop a valid scientific measure of joy and uh, mm-hmm. it's there's something called a chrome box alpha that measures the reliability of your instrument and I've got a 0.92 it's about as high as you can get on a measure mm-hmm. to show that it has internal consistency that's one of the indications that you're studying something that's real and not just made up mm-hmm. <laughs> you know and mm-hmm. it correlates with all the things all the other measures that we expect it would correlate so we follow all of the rules of uh, empirical scientific inquiry. And we have a measure that seems to be pointing to something that's real. And people understand what joy means. It's, you know, it's in the dictionary. People use it in every day. They might use it less now than maybe they did in the past because it emerges out of a spiritual tradition, but it's still part of the conversation. And, uh, and, And we do find that people who are more religious and spiritual tend to be higher in joy on those measures, mm-hmm. but it's yeah. not absent in those who are not religious. They still right. have joy. They still are able to rate themselves right. on joy and understand what it means. So, uh, and then we're able to do research on that. To, so what kinds of practices can contribute to joy? What kinds of personality characteristics are correlated with it? How is it mm-hmm. correlated with mental health and well-being? And we're finding that joy in, this, in the research we're doing are really closely tied to some of the most interesting and important psychological constructs that we're studying now, things like, mm-hmm. speaking of the biological part, the insula in the brain is a part of the brain that is important for giving us feedback about what's happening in our body. You know, when people have emotions, sometimes they call them feelings, and that's appropriate mm-hmm. because emotions have a felt sense in the body, and the insula in the brain is an important organ for, for receiving that input from our body and informing us about our emotional state. And also, it's important mm-hmm. for empathy. Because when I am have compassion, when I'm suffering with the other, I resonate mm-hmm. in my body with that other person's feelings as well. We have these mirror neurons that pick up what other people are feeling through their bodily gestures. And, uh, and, and we can empathize with people. We can come to some understanding about what other people are feeling. And that's really essential for psychotherapeutic process. When that's not happening between a therapist and a client, therapy doesn't go well. It doesn't have mm-hmm. positive outcomes, like you see when there is empathy. And it's also important in interpersonal relationships, in marriages and friendships. So all this is there in the research literature. And, the, and we know it has a biological component, but it also has a psychological component. And we could say even maybe a spiritual component, that maybe mm-hmm. when people develop a spiritual life, a kind of relationship to God, then that might cultivate just the type of conditions that create what I would call kind of unconditional joy, a capacity to find joy to maintain a kind of joyful peace despite the circumstances of, one, of one's life, despite the material circumstances of one's life. Uh, and yeah. I think that's a really a high state of emotional maturity to have that capacity. And I think it's, you know, a spiritual life seems to be a really important component of that. Yeah. And, and so, like you've talked about with joy, that there are a number of, of people that, are that don't want to think about 
any anything that sounds spiritual. Right. And so do you think that do you think that there's uh, the kind of maybe a backlash of that? Is that we're we're dealing with a lot of issues right now because there are so many you know nuns in our culture, the N O N E S, that don't right. want to think about anything that seems um, spiritual. That there is a, a a rejection of 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 mercy and compassion yeah. because those feel those feel spiritual. I think so, I, and I think that I can speak personally to this, and that when I have raised these questions to people that I know who are among the nuns, very by the way, very smart people, people who I respect as being intellectually gifted, who I value as people. But I'm always surprised <laughs> because of that, because they're people that I value. When I bring up these issues around mercy and the importance of forgiveness and agopic love, both all of those things are very central to my thinking about psychology and what it means to have healing relationships with one another. Mm -hmm. There's this pushback like, oh, that's, that sounds too spiritual and uh, rejection. I see that in students too when it comes, if it comes up in class. I've become more mm -hmm. sensitive to that and and try to you know create a class where, where students who may not be religious or spiritual feel comfortable talking about their perspective i'm not there to proselytize when i'm teaching at a secular right. university uh but i'm uh so i i want to create an inclusive environment but i also don't want to not be my you know share who i am in my belief so i i i, I get to be included too but so does everybody else that's the right. that's the fair way of thinking about inclusion so I try to be transparent about what I believe, but also very welcoming and hospitable to people who have different points of view. And I think I, I, I like to think I do a pretty good job at that because I think students feel comfortable telling me that they don't believe in those things or they don't think that mercy or they do think mercy and justice is incompatible. Like I teach a graduate class in humanistic and phenomenological psychology and the humanistic tradition places a lot of emphasis on empathy and a kind of agopic love with a real strong, the humanistic word kind of gives you a clue that it's much more of an emphasis on a secular reading of these kinds of concepts. But mm -hmm. the people who are in humanistic psychology were clearly drawing from theological sources and some of their thinking on this, but trying to translate it into secular terms, which is one of the things I think probably drew, drew me to it. So when we're talking about those kinds of things, like I, I, I talk about Martin Luther King, for example, and his concept of the beloved community, and I express mm -hmm. my position which is an ethic of nonviolence. And I even, you know, I talk a little bit about just war theory, that there may be certain conditions where we may need to defend ourselves and what would those conditions be. So I'll share some of my views mm -hmm. on that. But I use King as a way of talking about how to create, you know, a community of uh, loving relations. And I teach in a community mm -hmm. psychology program. In fact, I'm director of a community psychology program. So I'm very interested in how do we create loving, healthy, thriving communities. And so, uh, King, I think, provides a framework for thinking about how to, how to do that. I teach Rene Girard, who's a Catholic intellectual. And, the, and what I find is that it's really within the past. It, when I first started talking about King, for example, I didn't get a lot of pushback from students. In fact, there was a lot of support for that. But it's been within the, I would say, five to eight years, I started to see a shift, especially within the past three to th couple years. That mm -hmm. when I brought up King, there was a hostility to that. Even saw that when I, at the American Psychological Association, we had a panel celebrating King's, uh, it was the 
it was a, I think it was the 50th anniversary of an address he had given at the American Psychological Association. I helped to organize mm -hmm. a panel with people who knew King talking about this this event, and uh, and then we, uh, we were we just by by luck we had somebody who was a photographer in the audience who videotaped the whole thing, and uh, we and somebody had the good sense to ask them if we could have the videotape. So we had the whole thing videotaped, and then we got it edited and made a nice presentation out of it. So then we presented it at a conference, and I was kind of surprised at some of the backlash. Like there was people who were, you know, some African-American people in the audience who were not, who, who, uh, who basically informed me that they didn't see King as really offering a vision that was useful to them anymore. And that this hmm. position of nonviolence you know, had, it was a failed project and that they were endorsing a more, it seemed to me, I, this isn't exactly their words, but I'm assuming, I'm, I, I think it was more of an adoption of a more militant position that was more mm. willing to take a position that would be willing to be violent uh, if, if that's necessary. More like, right. you know, the a, 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 any means necessary kind of Malcolm X right. kind of philosophy. So does that come into thinking about, you know, the, the, the phrase that everyone is using these days is that we're we're in a cancel culture right now, right? right? Which which really seems like it's the opposite of mercy. And <laughs> right. And and while where I, I would say that there, you know, if there's someone that has a uh, that has an attitude or or a mindset that is very clearly wrong, well, then we need to do something to correct that, right? right. But but the especially where it comes in where someone is basically kicked out of any any venue because of something that they tweeted six years ago and they're not even given this chance to to explain it right right and so so it 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 feels like we we are in a, in an age where mercy is seen i think like you said like a, like a failed experiment a, a way of peacefully solving problems and you know what we just have to to fix it whatever way we can right right yeah i i think that i'm seeing that uh more and more frequently whether it's with colleagues at conferences or students in the classroom or in ex tamer you know conversations uh in the hallways with with uh with people and also on social media i'm seeing you know a shift there away from a kind of mercy, a kind of the, the ethics of a kind of Nelson Mandela or Martin Luther King, which is much more about moving towards a beloved community or Gandhi uh, mm -hmm. or Christ. Um, that has really informed my thinking. I, I was really influenced by Dorothy Day, you know, and how I think about issues around nonviolence. And that led me to deep dive deeply into the works of Gandhi and Martin Luther King and, and, uh, and others. And I, Really, I, I had a moment where I was reading. I, ha, I I went down to D.C. and visited King's Monument right after it had been mm -hmm. erected, and had a very moving mm -hmm. experience doing that. Uh, and uh, while I was there, I bought a book that that has all of his speeches that he's ever given compiled into one document. Wow. And and I just spent you know several months just reading chronologically through those speeches. And there's just, I mean, first of all, as everyone knows, whether you agree with Kane or not, is there a more eloquent orator that has ever right. 
spoken. He is just such an incredible yeah. orator, and 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 it's he can just move you even in writing, reading it in writing, and you can imagine hit that cadence that he talks and he builds in in the course of the talk while you're reading the well, and, speeches. You, and you could tell and you could tell that he was a preacher. That's right. Yeah, he, he talked, yeah. That's right. He brought. And he was that. a good preacher. Yeah. Yeah, he brought that to his oratory, and it, and it was just really a very moving experience and a religious, a spiritual experience for me to read through this, the, the his, his speeches. And there were some things that he said in there that, I, that on m many occasions that were so moving that it brought me to tears. Mm -hmm. it, that it was like, I, that almost I couldn't believe he was saying it. Like one of the things was, I remember one of the speeches he says, well, I love the white man, right? He talks about how, you know, and... And I'm imagining that I'm, I, I know what's happening at the time, right? That, he, mm -hmm. that he's go, he's going in, and in some cases, marching with black, white, and brown people, uh, fighting for just for tr truly fighting for justice, for liberation, for the mm -hmm. overcoming of truly unjust, uh, racist social policy, and yeah. being met with absolute scorn and violence, and yet refusing to meet that violence. And reciprocate it with violence. It's, to me, it's like the essence of what it means to to be a saint in the sense of having a mm -hmm. kind of heroic virtue, in this case, courage, being faced with mortal danger, in his case, literally sacrificing his life, and yeah. yet refusing to compromise his ethics, his, his ethics of nonviolence, and being willing to put himself in that position. And then to have him say, I love the white man, I... Even right now, I'm getting emotional just thinking about yeah, it. Yeah, um, yeah, especially thinking about all, yeah, like you said, all the violence, right, back in that that day. Yeah. How easy it would, how e when I think about how easy it would be for him, and how sympathetic, obviously, I would be if he didn't love the white man, if he actually had contempt right. for white people. For uh, it, I couldn't really blame him for that too much. It was very moving, but but I, I realized what happened in me as a white man was I felt like he was being sincere and he loved me, and that mm -hmm. and that I wanted to return that love to him, and that ignited in me this passion to want to join him in his cause, in our common humanity, and as beloved children of God, uh, and I think uh, in that I think what I felt, what I think a lot of white people are struggling with guilt, you know, about mm -hmm. the history of this country and the history of slavery that, you know, our bishops have called the original sin of the United States. There's something to that in the sense that, you know, an original sin is something that happens in the past that continues to have repercussions. Even though mm -hmm. we may not have been the ones who committed the sin, we continue to bear the burden of the guilt of that, yeah. of that original and, sin. And, we and, have and, even, and even realizing that we also, as, as white people, we also gain benefits because of past sin that we right. even though you know we we can say you know as much as we want that we are not personally racist although i think that that question itself is a very complex and not just a you know simple black and white but to say we still benefit right um but i think that one of the one of the things i'm i'm seeing especially on social media and next week uh, brent and i are going to talk about Specifically about social media and and talking about emotional uh, emotional health online, um, but when you have this uh, this culture of you know of not 
seeing mercy as an option, of seeing justice of, you know, we just, everyone needs to have their justice and we need to cancel anyone that is in any way saying something that we think is wrong. That you get, I think that is one of the th things that really leads to this polarization on both sides, uh, where you are, you know, you are seeing um, people that are saying, you know, I'm not, I'm not racist, I'm not racist, and yet because, but, but they're not willing to be nuanced about saying, but I understand that there are, you know, that there are terrible things, and I understand that I have even played a part in that. Right. And on the other side, you're, you have this, um, yeah, this, this seems like an attitude of, you know, you, you're wrong, and we just need to get rid of you. And no, no, no trying to find any connection, right? Right. Both sides of that polarization fuel one another, right? Because when you're in a relationship that lacks mercy and forgiveness, then there's no room for mistakes, mm -hmm. right? Because one mistake and you rupture that relationship or that person retaliates, right, to harm you. And, and one of the things that's interesting is there's, a, there's this law of reciprocity that you see that psychologists have been studying for a long time. You can even see in animals, you know, when, when somebody uh, does something to harm us, you know, the tendency is to want to return that harm with harm. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a very natural inclination that we have. Uh, and the problem with that is that there's a couple problems with that. One is that when we perceive the harm that others have done for against us, we tend to have what's called a self-serving bias. We tend to see that harm is maybe greater than it was because of a, just a basic perceptual bias, because we don't see the context of the other person's behavior. We just see, feel what they did to us. We don't know what their intentions were. We don't, all we do is make inferences based on the harm that we feel. So we tend to experience the harm that we have as being much greater than the other person experienced when they did mm -hmm. it. Uh, that doesn't mean that we're not harmed. It doesn't mean that we don't have the right to you know, speak to that harm and to confront that person about that. But and, and mercy and forgiveness don't do not in any way imply absolving the person of the wrongdoing of saying that, oh, you didn't really mm -hmm. do something wrong. It's it's actually trying to work toward reconciliation in that relationship. Mm -hmm. uh, it may not mean that you're reconciled, but forgiving may be a pathway that gets you to reconciliation. It may not. But so the reconciliation mm -hmm. and forgiveness are separate concepts, but they're closely related. When I'm feeling particularly wounded and, the other, and there's a mismatch and I retaliate against the other person, that they feel that my retaliation is unjust because they're like, well, that was such a strong retaliation for something so mm -hmm. small that I did. So now they feel wrong and they feel that an injustice has been done and then they feel they have to rectify that and maybe bring on some other people and their friends to help them right. uh, well, that, to retaliate that, that, that against escalates then it escalates. Then you get a cycle yeah. of violence. And it, whether it's a, a kind of a, it doesn't necessarily have to be physical violence, violence to be violence. I mean, violence is really a, the intention to harm somebody, whether mm -hmm. that's socially or, I mean, uh, I remember reading an examination of conscience that really blew my mind where they listed gossip under murder. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, yeah. that, that gossip is a kind of murder. And I was like, wow. I was, I was like, 
they're right. It's a kind of social. You're murdering somebody's yeah. reputation. Yeah. And and uh, and uh, I started. That had a big impact on me. I started really thinking about that when somebody would come and talk to me and they would be speaking negatively about a peer. Uh, I would always try to deflect, either deflect the conversation or say something nice about that person, you know, because I didn't want to commit murder, you know. Um, and then if I've caught myself falling into that, I would bring it to confession because uh, I realized how powerful that is. And there's a there's an element to, the, you know, there there's there may not be physical aggression that's happening, but when people's lives are completely destroyed because a whole gang of people. Uh, work to try to have that person's life destroyed by mm -hmm. isolating them socially, making everybody so, creating conditions of social rejection, uh, separating them from their means of employment, uh, mm -hmm. making them excluding them from their community. It's like the it's like the contemporary equivalent of exile. Right. Right. I mean, when, when they gave Aristotle a choice between exile and taking, you know, the hemlock, he chose the hemlock. That's how bad <laughs> uh, exile is to be to be alive and yet to feel completely abject within your yeah. culture is a horrible place to be. Uh, and now, so the interesting thing is so that that then when that begins to happen, then people become afraid of confessing. Right of, mm -hmm. of of acknowledging their wrongdoing because the yeah. costs are so high, and people become defensive, and then and then they rationalize their own hostility towards those other people because mm -hmm. well they're bad people and they're going to harm us so that so you create this vicious cycle and I think we probably are in a situation where especially exacerbated by the pandemic, where we're already seeing it escalate into real violence, whether we're talking about right, and both on the left and right, violence that's erupting. Mm -hmm. There's been, it's, mm -hmm. it's occasionally in the news. I just saw in, was it in Portland, there was another, there was an altercation between, you know, a Christian group and, and some Antifa protesters and where you get the proud boys and you know like there's the there's yeah. these fat you see on the news occasionally this boiling up into actual physical violence yeah. it's not that it's not so pervasive now that it's like a hobbesian war of all against all thomas hobbes the philosopher right. talked about that but it seems like we're on a slippery slope to that so how do we get out of it how do we get out of it I well mean, I, think, I, I i think the easy answer is forgiveness right, <laughs> right. but 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 how but what does that look like in in uh, in our modern day? Right. Yeah. Well, easier said than done. Right. I mean, th right. this is. Uh, I think we're in a real pickle uh, as a culture. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's an understatement. Uh, and that it's a very once you're in this cycle of violence, then it becomes very difficult to find your way out. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the yeah. people that I've been looking to to try to find answers to this problem in our culture is uh, Rene Girard. Uh, Girard was a Stanford professor, and he spent his life studying these kinds of dynamics, you know, how uh, violence can escalate into a kind of war of all against all, and how that gets mm -hmm. channeled into often scapegoating, you know, where, yeah. where certain kinds of innocent parties, you know, sort of get the brunt of that hostility. And I think that I'm seeing a lot of that now yeah. uh, it's, it's like reading Girard now is just you know 
uh, it's like reading a description of what's happening all around us. Uh, maybe it's always that case if he's right. But I like Gerard's prescription. First of all, he like me, he takes a particularly strong position of nonviolence. Because mm -hmm. for the very reasons I've been saying, because when you are willing to, uh, when, when, you're, when you're willing to retaliate for harms that's been done to you, through violence, whether that's, you know, literal violence or this other kinds of social aggression, then the problem with that is it again leads to this cycle. But also he, he points something out that there's a kind of unconscious we have. We don't recognize our own scapegoating as scapegoating because it would, it would be completely dis if we recognize that what we're doing is scapegoating when we're doing it, we wouldn't do it because we would right. feel our conscience would prevent us from doing it. So somehow through social forces, he even talks about St. Peter, right? The, the, the denial of Christ three times mm -hmm. as being this contagion where we get drawn into a mob and, and lose our capacity to set ourselves apart from the crowd rather than repeating the victimization. So Peter, you know, even Peter, uh, betrays Christ, which he, you know, prior to Christ's prediction, his prophecy, he would have never believed was possible. So we're right. all, the, so the important thing is that Peter, you know, a saint can do this, then we can all be drawn into yeah. these powers. Yeah. So, yeah. so I'm not, we have to see, you, I think a big shift is we need to shift from saying, oh, those people are scapegoaters and those mm -hmm. people are doing this and that. The finger pointing is a big part of the cancel culture. I am a good right. person, and I get honored right. by being victimized, and everybody else is the is the problem. And if people would just get canceled from social media or get you know or get thrown out yeah. of the culture, then everybody can live in a utopia. Well, if we start doing that, we're all. I mean, one of the things that we learn from the Christian tradition is that we're all sinners, and right. uh, none of us are innocent, and we're all capable of doing these things, and only yeah. ever become even close to sainthood through grace. Not right. through our own well, efforts. The thing that I love about the um, you're talking about, you know, Peter and his denial, is I when I had this realization that at the end of the Gospels you had Peter's denial, and you had Judas selling Jesus for the thirty pieces of silver, and when I realized that those were were basically the same sin. They, they both, they, it was both, they were both the denial of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And the important thing is looking at what they did next. Peter went back to Jesus and said, I was wrong. Please forgive me. And Judas went out and hung himself. Right. Yeah. yeah I think Judas. that, but I think that's going along with what you're saying that, um, you know, we need to see the issues in ourselves, Right. Right. We need, I need to see uh, the first, that's the first thing we need to do. There's a, somebody who's been a, been a big influence on me and my thinking around these issues, in addition to Rene Girard, is Emmanuel Levinas. He's a French philosopher, a Jewish philosopher, wonderful, right? He's difficult to get into at first when you start reading him because he's like a lot of French philosophers, very dense, difficult texts. But it's, it, he's, but when you develop a, a taste for it and you and you it's like fine wine you have to you kind of have to you know enjoy it for a while before you appreciate mm -hmm. it you know um 
And but reading Levinas, uh, one of the things he stresses in the ethical relation that we the ethical relation is always hierarchical. What he means by that is that the other is higher than me. What he means is it's mm -hmm. asymmetrical. And what he's trying to get mm -hmm. at there is like I am always more responsible than the other. And, and, yeah. and it's whenever whenever uh, I teach Levitas, people always have a problem with that. <laughs> They're like, what does he mean? Aren't we equal? Because it makes it sound like he's saying we're not equal. But I think mm -hmm. what he's doing there is kind of ingenious because he's recognizing that from an egoic perspective, from a self-absorbed mm -hmm. kind of perspective that we all come from, from a Christian perspective because of original sin, from a psychological perspective because we're born self-centered and we have to find our way out of that through maturity. We have a tendency to, um, you know, want, you know, to, when, when people talk about social justice, we're not thinking about social justice for them. We're thinking about social justice for me, <laughs> right. you know, because we're self-serving. Right. Uh, and the, the trick is, as much spiritually and psychologically, the maturity is to shift from, wait a minute, I'm the one who needs to rectify his injustice, mm -hmm. right? I'm the problem. I, I need to be, I need to be, <laughs> I need to be the one that asks for mercy. That's right. right. I need to be the one that asks for mercy. Yeah. And I can't expect that from other people. I think that's the that's what King understood is that mm -hmm. he at because he was Christian and a deeply spiritual person, he understood that in the core of his bones and meant it when he said it, you mm -hmm. know. And uh, because he had that grace, that spiritual grace that came through his prayer life and uh, through his yeah. yeah through his sacramental baptism and and so on and I think that uh, we 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 won't have a shift in the culture until we start moving into that asymmetricality where we realize mm -hmm. I'm I'm the one who's the problem I'm you know I am the problem here to start with right. because I am a sinner I can't yeah, overcome so that on my own I need I right. need something beyond myself to rectify that problem right and and so thinking about then about about worrying about being canceled or canceling you know and so instead of thinking you know what what did somebody else say or what did somebody else do to you know, really be bold and say you know what whether i'm canceled or not here's this here's an attitude of mine that i realized that that i need to change Here's something that I did that was not a great thing to do, and I'm sorry. If please have mercy on me, if you can, if you can find it in your heart. To That's do. right. That's right. Yeah. So I think that the danger for those who are being victimized by cancel culture, correct? Who, who are being targeted by cancel culture, is to adopt the attitude of the victim, right? And to mm -hmm. and to point the finger and say you're the problem. But I think the the, Christ, the Christian thing to do, and I think the psychologically mature thing to do, which I think are the same thing, is to search yourself and 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 look for mercy. And uh, and I think that if everyone starts to do that, I mean, then we start to get closer to that vision of the beloved community when we're all mm -hmm. searching and examining ourselves first. And also, the other thing is, yes, sometimes we are persecuted, and there. And I think it's true that cancel culture sometimes. Persecutes it often persecutes people unjustly, targets people unjustly. Mm -hmm. That's the scapegoating phenomenon, right? Where certain mm -hmm. people get targeted who don't really deserve it, you know, or or the 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 punishment is way higher than the crime, you know, in some cases. Mm -hmm. 
So there's a lot of injustice that happens in, in I think, can cancel culture, it, even though they may have been precipitated by actual injustice that needs to be reconciled. Mm -hmm. re reconciled. But I think that from a, from a Christian perspective and from a Catholic perspective, the way I try to look at that is that, okay, if I'm being persecuted, that should be something I expect. I mean, it's in the gospel, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Persecution is part of the. It's, it's part of the it's life. Of things. Yeah, it's one of the things that Jesus said to us. This this will happen. You know, peace yeah. People persecuted me. They're going to persecute you. Don't right. don't be surprised. Yeah. If you if you're surprised by that, you need to read more of the gospel because yeah. it couldn't yeah. be clearer that Jesus is saying, you know, if you follow me, take up your cross. What do you think he means by that? You're going to have yeah, some crosses in your life. Not fun. Crosses aren't fun to carry. No. So I think that we shouldn't go out looking for crosses to carry. But when mm -hmm. life hands us those crosses, then we have to recognize that that is something that aligns us to our Savior and to Christ. Yeah. And that, that is, there is redemptive power in that. Yeah. When yeah. we take up our cross and we do it gracefully, right? In other words, with yeah. the grace of God, we can... We can God doesn't, you know, there's that, I guess it's a kind of a trait truism, but God doesn't give us anything that, you know, that we can't handle kind of idea. But mm -hmm. I think there's there's a truth to that. If you have faith, then you can love, mm -hmm. even in the face of persecution. Those are spiritual yeah. theological virtues that come from yeah. grace, and only from grace, you could say. And, and hope, the hope that even in periods of despair, that things will turn out, that justice yeah. will Come. And we can still respond in mercy and in love if we That's have right. that attitude. Right. That's right. And, and, not, and, not, that... and not an attitude of snapping back. Right. The hope part, I think, is important, too. You know, I mean, something that really struck me, it's on the, if you go and visit the monument to, to King in D.C., there's a bunch of quotes, and one of them is that the universe bends towards justice, I think is the, I might be paraphrasing, but it's something along those lines. And that's that's faith. You have to have faith that there's a God, that God mm -hmm. knows every hair on your head. He, it's like, uh, you know, you're like, and be, and be like the lily of the fields and that you trust that God will provide. And even when mm -hmm. you go through periods of persecution, there will, there will be grace that flows from that if you continue mm -hmm. to work on being holy through that. And that mm -hmm. means loving. Loving those who are persecuting you, especially those who persecute you, because and, Christ and says, forgiving. and forgiving. Christ says to love yeah. our enemies. What does Christ say on the cross, right? He says, you know, God forgive them. They know not what they do. That's how yeah. we have, we have to adopt Christ. We have to become more Christ-like if we're going to shift the culture. And that means yeah. forgiving those. It doesn't mean saying that I'm not being persecuted. It doesn't mean denying right. what's happening, Right. but loving anyway. Right, right. Well, I, I, I feel like we really just, in a lot of conversations like this, we just scratched the surface of <laughs> right. a lot of these issues. But, uh, but not, it gave me a lot, of, a lot of great things to think about. And I think that hopefully uh, we, can, we can start to try and move as individuals. And I think the more individuals that can do this, that can, that can really think of how to be merciful even when I feel like I'm being persecuted and not lash out and not lash back. Um, that, you know, that's where, that's where I think a lot of change will really come from. So, but 
I want to thank you for joining us. I think this is uh, we this is a long episode. We've gone a little bit long, but I think it's a, we've talked about a lot of good stuff. But come back next week. Uh, Brent is going to be back next week. We're going to be talking about emotional health, thinking about you know this. We've talked a lot about how to treat others in uh, in this episode, treating others with mercy. Uh, but I think that can be turned back on ourselves as well, treating ourselves with mercy and caring for ourselves. So next week. We're going to be talking about emotional health online and especially in uh, social media. So, Brent, thank you for joining us. I'm looking forward to talking again next week. Absolutely. Take care. Thank you. All right. It's an honor. And and, uh, thank you for joining us on this uh, new episode of Nerding Out with That Nerdy Catholic. Uh, I want to remind you that uh, you can head over to Nerdy Catholic Tees. Nerdy Catholic Tees is the other little side of this nerdy Catholic world that I'm building here. And uh, there's... I got this St. Michael prayer, uh, prayer in Latin, and uh, it's a prayer that I pray with my family every night, powerful prayer for the protection of uh, St. Michael the Archangel. Uh, So you can see that design as well as many others over at nerdycatholictees.com. If you use the coupon code thatnerdycatholic, you'll get 10% off of your order. I'll see you again next week. God bless. Shut down.